The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only. And the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For more, the views and expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect the official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly catch like more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're both. And my favorite part, and this we can leave this right in the recording, is the part where Wado tries to choose a specific energy to actually introduce the show. And you can actually, if, if I wish our viewers could actually <laughs> see the video where like he just kind of braces himself, looks off into the middle distance, and then sort of starts with a little bit too much enthusiasm that's kind of unsettling. <laughs> Having said that... It's like Frodo li- leaving the Shire. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, having said all that, welcome back to the Curbsiders. I am joined by my excellent co-host, Dr. Elena Gibson. Dr. Gibson, how are you tonight? Doing good. Uh, tonight's episode, we had a great episode talking to Dr. Katrina Donahue, uh, one of the members of the United States Preventive Services Task Force, about the new screening for syphilis guideline and recommendations. Um, I'm going to let Elena tell you about the, the guest in just a second. But before I do that, I should probably remind you that we are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Uh, and as I mentioned, I am joined, joined by Elena Gibson. Uh, Elena, why don't you tell us a little bit about Dr. Donahue and how she came to be talking to us about this new syphilis recommendation? Yeah, happy to, Paul. So Katrina Donahue is a professor and vice chair of research at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, Department of Family Medicine. She is also a member of the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. Her work includes comparative effectiveness research, practice redesign of healthcare delivery, and de-implementation of low-value care. As a family physician, Dr. Donahue maintains a busy clinical practice and teaches students, residents, and fellows in clinical and research settings. All right. Before we get to the show, any any great syphilis puns for me, Dr. Gibson? Mm, no. I'm so But relieved. I do have a pick. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Give us a pick of the week. <laughs> All right. You ready? So I'm going to a concert tomorrow night for a band, French Kiwi Juice. I don't know if it's really a band, more of a one guy, but he makes very... <laughs> Very good music, so... <laughs> and I'm sorry, are you saying fringe or French kiwi juice? French. French kiwi juice. And could you yes. give us a genre? FKJ. Oh, that's a great question. It says he's a multi-instrumentalist. <laughs> all right, well, as for you... That's all I got. After our conversation, <laughs> I'm going to rush to YouTube. Katrina, thank you so much for, for joining us. We're excited to talk about the, the USPSTF recommendation for screening for syphilis. Um, but before we get into it, we're just, I, I, I'm sure our listeners would love to know exactly who we're talking to. So would you mind giving us just a one-liner to describe yourself for us? Oh, sure. So I'm Katrina Donahue. I'm a family physician, health services researcher, and I'm on faculty at UNC Chapel Hill in the Department of Family Medicine. A fun fact is that um, I, I coach CrossFit um, and occasionally compete. Uh, I actually had to reschedule one of my evening classes to join you guys tonight to talk about syphilis. <laughs> wow. Well, thank you for that sacrifice. Wait, so what does, what, yeah. I always thought of like CrossFit as like an individual sort of achievement. What does the competition actually look like? Oh, actually that, the competitions, they can be individual, but they can also be team based being groups of two or four. And it's just multiple different types of activities that you do. <laughs> like, like who's flipping over the most tires yeah. and that kind of stuff. Yeah, sometimes lifting, sometimes it's running, pull-ups, all kinds of aspects of physical fitness. Okay. When our guests continue the long tradition of making me feel worse about myself, so that's excellent. (laughs) (laughs) I tried CrossFit once and lasted one month, and 
uh, got two injuries. So I'm, <laughs> oh no! Yeah. I didn't make it very far. You're doing better than me too. It's scalable for everybody, and um, it was fun. It was fun. Um, <laughs> great. <laughs> I'm gonna keep telling myself that. <laughs> Syphilis. <laughs> Okay, so we'll start out with a brief case here at Cashlack. So Bethany Brook, she's a 20-year-old. Uh, she's coming to the student clinic at the University of West East Mississippi. And she would like to establish care and have an IUD place for birth control. She reports that she's had three new sexual partners in the last six months and uses the withdrawal method for contraception but does not use condoms regularly. Her pregnancy test is negative. You recommend gonorrhea, chlamydia, and HIV screening. You're struggling to remember if you should screen for syphilis too. So thinking about the updated USPSTF guidelines, why is syphilis screening being considered in these updated guidelines compared to the 2016 recommendation? Yeah, certainly. I mean, after reaching a record low in 2000, the rates of syphilis have been increasing over the past 20 years from about 6,000 people in 2000 to now nearly 40,000 people in recent years. Certainly, this is a very timely topic. Um, and also, uh, you know, from time to time, the task force will update the recommendations to keep up to date with the current literature. And that's what we did. So, you know, evidence continues to show that screening for syphilis is beneficial for those at increased risk. Yeah, and I wanted to ask, I guess, the, the, the term for this is this reaffirmation process, which I'm kind of fascinated by. Is it, it seems like sometimes USPSTF gets, you know, there are, are new impactful studies that come out that kind of prompt this evaluation. And sometimes, it, this I'm a little bit less clear on. So was it just the increase in prevalence that prompted the consideration of reaffirmation? Or is there a timetable that you go by to kind of just say, yep, we should go back and just revisit this guideline? Like in this, in this instance, like what, how does that process look? Yeah, that's a good question. The reaffirmation process or the topic when we decide to look at a new topic again, um, it takes place every five years or so. Our last time that we looked at the syphilis topic was in 2016. It was due, in a sense. We do take several things into account when deciding whether to pull a topic up. It could be the public health importance of the topic. It could be the changing literature in the last several years. But on the whole, about every five years, we will re-update our topics. So speaking of changes, you know, one thing we mentioned is uh, there's definitely some benefit to screening individuals who are high risk. How is that defined and what qualifies an individual as being high risk? And um, specific to the case we presented at Bethany, would she qualify for screening based on her risk? This recommendation in particular, it applies to non-pregnant adolescents and adults who've ever been sexually active and are at increased risk. And when we think about who should be screened, the risks of syphilis is higher. It's higher in men who have sex with men, those with HIV infection or other STIs, people who use illicit drugs, people with a history of incarceration, uh, sex work, or military service. Uh, so th those are individual risk factors. Additionally, healthcare professionals need to consider how common syphilis is in the communities they serve and assess that. There are many risk factors. In Bethany's case, when we look at her, she's at increased risk. Uh, she has had unprotected sex, which would put her at risk for STIs. She's also had multiple partners. Uh, other risk factors could include rates in the community. One would, you know, depending where you're working, you can you can go to the CDC to look at the state rate in terms of syphilis prevalence uh, and 
going to the local health department is also a good source for looking at the rates in your own community. Uh, in general, the southern United States is com comprises the largest proportion of syphilis cases. For Bethany, she's, she's definitely at increased risk, and I would recommend screening her. As much as you're able to talk a little bit more about sort of the geographic risk, which I'm sure is, is the question that, that comes up a lot, I think... Elaine and I were talking sort of before the episode began, even in Pennsylvania, where I practice, I feel like if you consider prevalence in, say, Philadelphia as compared to, say, Lancaster or Hershey, um, even, you know, I, I think sort of classifying sort of risk according to Pennsylvania just feels not quite as meaningful, just given there's such variation even within states. So I, I guess I'm wondering, you know, how how to use geography to determine risk? And is there like an absolute threshold of prevalence where suddenly someone is at higher risk or not? Just how, you know, above and beyond sort of looking for the data, what do we do with the data when we find it? There's no specific threshold for risk here. Um, this, this is a pretty strong recommendation for screening for syphilis. We do have evidence gaps. And one of those gaps is thinking about risk assessment tools. The task force is calling for more evidence on risk assessment tools that could be used in primary care to help healthcare professionals better determine who's at high risk and who would benefit most from screening. Yeah, clearly we're looking for one of those, you know. <laughs> yeah. It's the running joke of the show, by the way, is I, we just want someone to tell us what to do. Like, I, rather than have to sort of make clinical yeah. decisions, if there's just someone, if there's a tool that just said, yes, now screen, that would be super useful. So someone should probably get on that. Katrina, how did these recommendations differ from the prior USPSTF recommendations or other organizations? This recommendation has remained uh, the same for the task force. It was last updated in 2016, but it's been around for 25 years. I think the first time the task force looked at this recommendation was back in 1996. The evidence remained strong. The benefits certainly are good uh, for screening and treating syphilis. The CDC also recommends screening, at least annually, in sexually active men who have sex with men. There are other organizations uh, as well, like the um, Infectious Diseases Society of America has their own screening guidelines. There are um, specialty guidelines. Now, the studies that we looked at for the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, we excluded studies that were part of disease management. But there are guidelines in the CDC, as well as the IDSA, that have a recommendation specific to the HIV population. Great. And I think it is always worth commenting on the things that the task force can't comment or didn't have sufficient evidence to recommend. So I think the intervals is one of the things that kind of came up. I know you, you some specific instances yes. where they it does apply, but in terms of the, the broader recommendation, it sounds like there's not a specific interval that's recommended for screening for patients. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's a good point. Although the evidence is strong for screening people at high risk. Uh, we need more evidence on optimal screening intervals for high-risk populations. Um, we need evidence on um, you know, the effectiveness of rapid point-of-care testing compared to laboratory testing. It does seem like a point-of-care test would be, you know, an ideal way to really screen more people quickly and give them results and treatment quickly as well. Uh, but from what I could tell, it seemed like that wasn't quite as sensitive whenever the task force looked at it. We, we didn't find enough evidence regarding the effectiveness of rapid point-of-care testing compared with laboratory testing. What we do know is that um, you know, screening for syphilis, it involves two tests. Usually the, there's the first test, which it's a blood test. You're looking for antibodies made by the body, body to fight infection. So this is typically a non-treponemal test or an RPR. And if that one's positive, then you would go on to a confirmatory treponemal antibody tester. There we know the evidence is strong for testing. And this is, and correct me if I'm wrong, there, there's sort of the, mm -hmm. that's traditional 
way of testing, I think, is, is what you just outlined. And there's also sort of the, I guess, the yeah. newer reverse cascade, which I guess the USPSF doesn't make specific recommendations, but there's the testing screening with the treponemal test and then reflexing to the, the non-treponemal. Do I, do I have that right? Yeah. In terms of the testing where we found the best evidence, um, it, it involved testing with the non-treponemal test, such as the RPR, and then followed by the confirmatory test. We did look at the other two test process as well, um, but we didn't find um, the evidence wasn't as clear in primary care populations. So it may be in, in different populations. With the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, we're looking at the person that presents to your office without any signs or symptoms in primary care. And for that group, that's where we, we saw the evidence strongest for those initial two tests. Yeah, and we were talking before, I, I don't know about you, Paul, but I've gotten pretty used to using the reverse algorithm. So using testing for that treponemal specific and then in reverse. But, and it seems like maybe there's benefit to that on a larger scale whenever big labs are running a lot of tests in one day, things like that. Yes. As, as we're sort of in, in the realm of sort of just screening in general, why why not screen everybody? So I guess sort of the usual question, can you can you talk us through what the potential risks of testing are? Um, I think the risks of treatment are a little bit more straightforward and sort of antibiotics, I think that's been discussed sort of endlessly if they're given unnecessarily. But in terms of the actual screening process itself, why not just screen adults, even plus or minus sexually active adults or not? What, what are the potential risks of screening? Well, that, that's a good question. Yeah. I mean, why not screen everybody? Well, when the task force, when we were looking at evidence, we're looking at evidence to make sure that the evidence is clear, that there's a clear benefit um, and the benefits outweigh the harms. There are potential harms of screening, including false positive tests um, that could require clinical follow-up and unnecessary anxiety for the patient. However, focusing on screening those at increased risk helps counterbalance these potential harms. Speaking of potential risks, Bethany has some concerns about being tested. Uh, she knows that, you know, sometimes this the health department learns that you've had syphilis or other STIs, and she's concerned that if she gets tested, this will happen. So speaking of, you know, potentially reportable disease risk, what are there specific risks to the patient that are considered? We didn't specifically look at reportable disease risk as a potential harm, but as a clinician... I could understand the concern that she's sharing. And I would say to Bethany, in the same way we want to help you, we want to help others get the care that they need. I'd reassure her that the health department's very respectful and they will try to do everything to protect the identity of the positive person and not disclose information while ensuring that partner tracing is completed. All right. I'd like to if it's okay, I actually try to recap here and just kind of make sure that we have the recommendations down, if that's all right. So we're the patient population that we're looking at are asymptomatic because we're talking screening. These are non-pregnant adolescents and adults who have ever been sexually active, who have increased risk, and that risk is determined by a bunch of stuff. Um, there are a lot of potential risk factors, um, including sort of geographic, but then also sort of other background things. And it sounds like we're sort of relying on our, our overall clinical sense of, of risk as well as determining sort of who is higher risk and who is not, that there are specific things that like men who have sex with men um, are at higher risk in certain other populations like patients who use drugs. Um, the screening test that we're to use, there's a couple of options. There is the uh, traditional versus the reverse cascade testing, both which use a combination of treponemal and non-treponemal testing, and then point-of-care testing, which I personally have not seen as much of, but the, the recommend does, does mention that it exists and is out there and, and can be used as well. And then in terms of the intervals in which we're screening, I, I'm 
assuming that this is also going to be based sort of if there's changes in risk, there's no concrete interval that is recommended specifically by the USPSTF. But uh, I would imagine that as a clinician, you would sort of rescreen based on sort of changes in risk factors uh, and sort of other uh, broader considerations. Does that all sound right? Did I misstate or misrepresent anything? Uh, just one minor thing for point of care testing. That's one area we're calling for more research. in. so Great. we're not recommending point of care testing. Perfect. Thank you for the clarification. All right, Dr. Gibson, was there anything else that you wanted to know? No, I think that really summarizes it well. Um, is there anything else, Katrina, that you would w- like to highlight in the recommendation? Certainly. Syphilis can cause serious health problems, but screening people who are at increased risk can identify the infection so it can be treated before problems develop. The task force recommends screening for syphilis infection in persons who are at increased risk for infection. Great. Thank you so much for your time. This was really, really helpful. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. <laughs> I feel like your heart wasn't in that. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our Curbsiders Digest, recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. We're committed to high-value practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or email us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our writer and producer for this episode, Dr. Elena Gibson, and to our whole team. The Curbsiders is produced and edited by the team at Podpaste. Elizabeth Proto runs our social media, and Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. Until next time, I've been Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Elena Gibson here. Thank you, and good night. <laughs>